Hello, and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm your host, Sean Clabo, and with me today is your other co-host, Caleb. Caleb Wells. Hey, hey Caleb. Today, we're going to be discussing Link. Caleb and I are going to be talking about our experience using Link, language integrated query, if nobody's right. known about that before. So some of our experiences, knowledge, and pass on a few tips and tricks here and there. One of the things that I have as a goal for devchat.tv is to cover technologies that are up and coming, things that we're probably going to have to deal with on a more regular basis in the future. Some of these include AI, VR, and one of them is blockchain. So I reached out to one of the experts that I knew, Gregory McCubbin, and we pulled together a few other people and we've started a podcast called Adventures in Blockchain. So if you're looking at blockchain as something that you may want to work in, something that you're curious about learning more about, or something that you just want to keep current on until you have the opportunity to make a career jump and go over and work in blockchain and crypto, then definitely check out Adventures in Blockchain. You can find it at adventuresinblockchain.io. Caleb, you want to get us started? Yeah, absolutely. I think Link is probably something that most .NET developers use on a daily basis and don't even think about it. I know for me, uh, a lot of it's become second nature. A little background on Link. It was originally released as part of .NET Framework 3.5 in 2007, I think. And the initial intent was to provide uh, query expressions or um, kind of a SQL-like way of going over data, right? Aggregating data, uh, arrays, lists. Dealing with collections and things like that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I remember too, you know, when it came out in that yeah, 3.5 quite some time ago. And I didn't really understand it for, for quite a while. And right. I probably stayed with just using for loops and for each and all that kind of stuff until I really right. started getting into using it with things like Entity Framework. And that's where I really said, okay, Link has a lot of value and started using it then. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that, uh, at least for me, I would tend to have to do before Link, say I wanted to, to query an array, I could do dot .where on that array, but I would actually have to do a delegate and basically cast it to it the type we already know it is to be able to iterate over the information inside of it. One of the things that Link added was Lambda expressions right, which is the idea of you're still using operators like where, but instead of having to actually assign it so it knows what it is, you can use Lambda expressions, which is, you know, uh, an identifier with the uh, fat arrow, which is equal and greater than sign. And then you have access to those objects and C-sharp and link smart enough to know what you're which you're iterating over or, or digging through. Right. So, you know, with Link, and one of the things about it is it has two different syntax yep. for you. So you can either yep. use the query syntax, which yep. is more like SQL and things like that. But when I first saw the query syntax, I was going, what kind of SQL thing is that? Why didn't, <laughs> why didn't they do it the same way as, as yeah. SQL? And it really, I found out that uh, the reason why they kind of have a reversed order Mm -hmm. is to help with IntelliSense because right. when you have your froms coming before your selects, then IntelliSense can pick up 
what the context of what you're trying to select is from. Right. And, uh, you know, give you the, the tool tips and, and help with auto completion and things like that. So, yeah, with either the query syntax, which is SQL like, or with the Lambda syntax, was which right. is your fat arrow. Yep. And uh, like you, I started out with the, the query syntax, right? Because while it wasn't SQL, that was definitely a lot closer to SQL. And I remember um, using ReSharper. I would write it in the query syntax and then use C Sharper to convert it to, <laughs> the, to Lambdas. I don't have to do that anymore, thankfully. But that's definitely a way, if you're familiar with SQL and you're not that familiar with Link, to kind of bridge the gap, right? Um, and get more comfortable with, uh, with using Lambdas. Another interesting thing about Link, of course, it's, it's supported in all um, .NET languages. So C-sharp, F-sharp, VB.NET. But it's also been ported to other languages just because of the, um, I guess, the, the strength in it, right? It's, it's easy to get started, but it's, there's a lot in there and, and a lot to master. So it's been ported to uh, languages like PHP, and JavaScript, ActionScript, which really is <laughs> no longer exists. Right, right. And, and uh, TypeScript as well. There's a link between, no pun intended, link and uh, ReactiveX, which for people who do front-end work like Angular, you're probably familiar with RxJS. But um, ReactiveX is, uh, is what RxJS um kind of the rules that it follows, but there are a number of languages based off of RxJS or the ideas of it. And one of them is Rx.net. And they have a lot of the same ideas and uses that you get from Link um, in .NET. So one of the things I found with Angular, at least, is using RxJS and observables. It can be a little foreign but if you've had experience with Link, it definitely makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the selling features for me with going with Angular for the front end was its kind of strength with using TypeScript. And I never really enjoyed pl- programming in uh, just you know plain JavaScript, but uh, using TypeScript because it was kind of so similar to C Sharp really mm-hmm. made it comfortable for me. And so being most of the examples and so tightly tied into TypeScript, Angular ended up being a choice for me. And I, I still like it, even you know, TypeScript and not TypeScript. I like the way that uh, Angular works with components and things like that. Maybe that goes back to my, my web forms days because a lot of things kind of seem the same structure there where you have your, your web controls and your code behind and, and your style sheets and everything was kind of separate there. So, Yeah, so... Along those lines, taking things like Link and Lambdas to simplify your code, there's actually a number of features in .NET that were initially created to support Link. Of course, we mentioned Lambda expressions, but there's a number of extension methods that Link provides uh, off of I enumerable of T, which definitely makes it easier to to dig through collections. Um, anonymous types are also something that came out of a need to go through collections of data in Link. 
Okay, um, so so define. Uh, we need, I think, go back and do some definition yeah. here about you know what's anonymous type and what do lambdas you know get you and how do, how are they structured and you know a lambda really is for helping build a predicate and a predicate yes. being you know something that's true or false an expression right. so right. You're using that in your collections to come up with a where clause based upon conditions in the data your yep. properties and so on and so forth to either filter or group or order and that's so, by using lambda next you're coming up with you know that fat arrow you're going to come up with a predicate that determines whether or not something is true or false to be included. Yeah. So yeah, with lambdas, you're getting access to the internals of the objects, the collection of objects that you're iterating over, right? The idea with anonymous types is that it doesn't have a defined class. It ends up being more of a generic object. And so in that sense, you could do aware on a collection and you start out with a lambda, but on the other side of the lambda, you actually do a new with the uh, curly braces, and that creates your anonymous type. And then you can actually create properties on that anonymous type that tie back to the items in the collection. Yeah, so conceptually, I think of anonymous type as similar to a dynamic type. It is. Absolutely. So you don't really have to predefine all the different structure of that type. You can do it right in your code there inside the curly braces. You can give yep. it property names and then inside the properties, you can calculate out the value that you want for that. Or it could be right. property can be a collection further down. Right. Another thing you don't necessarily need to define the property names. You can actually um, just reference the properties on the objects themselves, and it will in turn determine the property names based on what you're referencing. So it's right. Anonymous types of uh, and dynamics are a deep subject and and um, something that we could probably talk for for a whole another <laughs> podcast on. That just shows you one of the strengths and powers that you can get into with Link once you're uh, familiar with it. Right. And anybody that's uh, actually using C-sharp 7 or above, uh, they have one more option, and that's to mm -hmm. select into a tuple. So yes. it becomes very similar to selecting into an anonymous type. But if you select into a tuple, mm -hmm. then the scope of that object isn't as limited as what an anonymous type does. Because with an right. anonymous type, you can't return that. Right. Uh, you can't return it outside of the function, or you can't pass it on to some other functions down the line because mm -hmm. it just doesn't know the structure or, or anything like that of what it is. But if you define a tuple, then mm -hmm. you can give a named tuple and mm -hmm. then it actually return that out because it is a, a defined structure of, of either ints or, or arrays, collections, strings, whatever you want, and you can return that. So I've been doing that most recently, trying to get it use tuples more often than I do anonymous types. Gotcha. You know, I've talked with a number of developers when it comes to link and the Lambda expressions or link and anonymous types. And for uh, a few of them, right, they're, they're turned off by it because it looks very foreign. It's not as structured. And uh, there's a lot of syntactic sugar in there. And it's, and it's basically doing a lot of stuff for you behind the scenes. I, myself, I found it 
right, to, to kind of abstract away the stuff that I don't want to mess with or deal with and simplify my workflow. For instance, you know, if I am looking through a collection of items and they have a, a status property on them, and that status can be, you know, any number of things, uh, it can be Boolean strings, ints, the, if it's strings, it can be bad, good, evil, you know, whatever. <laughs> you can actually, you know, before you would probably write 10 lines of code to iterate over, over that collection and find a specific status. So you only wanted the good ones. Whereas when you're using link and Lambda expressions specifically, you can use, you know, the any and all extension methods and it turns into one line instead of 10. I understand wanting to know what it's doing and understanding that. But once you do, it greatly simplifies your code. And along those lines is link and Lambda expressions. When you're doing, uh, whether you're querying link to objects or link to entities, right? You get into a place where you're doing a select and then you're doing a where and then you're doing an order by. That idea uh, of chaining link extensions or pipelines, right? People can look at that and say, you know, that you're, that you're showing off or that you're, you're not using link correctly. If it's written well, right, and your code is actually uh, on the screen, you're doing a carriage return for each pipeline or chain, it's pretty easy to read. And it makes, in my opinion, it makes your code cleaner and more readable. Uh, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I do too. And, and it's one thing why I actually, uh, with Entity Framework, I really like dealing with that is because I can read a series of link statements so much easier than a big, long SQL statement that has multiple relationships with selects and inner tables and all that kind of stuff and pick up the intent of the statement so much easier because you're using, you know, much better named variables, the way that things are, can be structured just makes it a lot easier to break apart and to see how that chain or that statement is being built upon the initial collection and how mm -hmm. it's filtering and it becomes a lot of more, a lot more linear to understand. And yeah. one nice thing about a link is you can actually separate your statements out into multiple different, I guess, statements and things like that. So because of the deferred execution nature yeah. of yeah. link. So right. if you want, if you need to have like a subset or sub table you can actually write that as a statement first. Mm -hmm. And as long as you don't call that statement, if you're hitting a database, it's not going to hit the database right. until it actually needs the data. You can do a assign like a subset of your information in mm -hmm. one statement mm -hmm. and then process that from a select statement on the next line down right? Um, and give it meaningful names. So you right. know that your, your sub-select, your sub-table, whatever you want to, call it there, whatever your use is, becomes much more readable, understandable, and not so tightly joined into each other that it's right. too complex. So when you're talking about uh, deferred execution, right, you're crafting a link query, 
and you may be doing selects and where's and order bys on it, but you're not enumerating it on the end. You're not doing two list or two array or two enumerable, right? Right. Um, and and that's where you're you're actually not building the list in memory. The only time you actually reference it is when you do do a two list or you do a for each, and then you iterate over it. When the actual data from the link statement is needed right. at the runtime is when it actually goes out and, and fetches the data, either from memory or from a database and so right. on and so forth. So it's really powerful when you think about it. And there's, right, there's multiple use cases for this deferred execution. Another thing on top of that deferred execution is iQueryable. And I've used this previously or before when, like you said, you have a few SQL statements that you want to chain together, but they may not necessarily be directly attached or attributable. You can do queryable and then continue to chain off of it. And then when you actually need it, it will manage all that for you. Right. Often I'll write uh, custom extension methods that are functions to Mm -hmm. build the predicate in a little predicate library that I use. I'll use the funks and things like that to build a utility library of commonly used predicates that I use on my collections. Yeah. Reference it that way. Yeah. With it deferred execution, each one of those I can just separate down on a, in the chain and then it doesn't actually go out into the memory and use up all the memory on that first statement. It wakes until the last statement when the data actually gets called upon. Right. Yeah, there are some downsides and things and gotchas on that deferred execution, especially right. when you're using a database behind your mm-hmm. bank. Well, I think that's one of the problem children that people point to with Link, and especially uh, Link to Entities and Entity Framework, right? Because when Entity Framework originally came out, it was not particularly performant. And the SQL queries that it would create off of your Link queries could be nasty. And you know, there could be massive resource hogs. I do feel like Microsoft has gotten better with the new framework over time, especially with .NET Core and EF Core, right? When they started over, I can actually um, debug or uh, output my uh, link statements to the console when it's actually writing SQL. And as long as you're not uh, writing them poorly. The SQL is actually really pretty clean. You know, it's good or better than what I would write. Yeah, back when it was linked to entities and the early versions of Entity Framework, yeah, mm-hmm. that SQL that it comes out with could be, yeah, pretty pretty hairy, but it is a whole, whole lot better now. One of the tips that, that I use um, that I'll pass on to the listeners is that uh, have you used LinkPad? Yes, absolutely. LinkPad. Yeah. That's yeah. One, one of the great things that, that I like to do with it is yeah. put my link statements in there and then I can yeah. see the SQL that it's generating and send to the database without having to do console logs and all that kind of stuff within right. my main code. And yeah. then I can copy that SQL over into SQL you know, Management Studio, run it, and see what the execution plan is going to come out. And right. figure out, do I need better indexing or... Is the SQL that it's generating just not what I would expect it to be, especially mm-hmm. if I'm selecting a lot more columns than what I need to? And mm-hmm. if that's the case, then I do want to select into either a tuple or an anonymous object. So it's not selecting 
star from some table. Right, right. But then the other thing is when I run it in um, LinkPad is that if I'm iterating over that collection, mm-hmm. I can make sure that it's not then making a database call on each one of those iterations. So right. that that's where that deferred execution bites you is right. if if you don't have all the tables in your initial select and mm-hmm. you start iterating over it, it will then start going one at a time, getting the additional yeah. information that it needs, where if you're going to, once you put it in the link pad, you can see that, oh, wow, it just ran 10,000 queries where I thought it was only going to run once. Right. You know, to rewrite your statement and in any framework, you're going to use something like a dot include so mm-hmm. that it knows to get that extra information right at the initial first query. And you can run into uh, similar issues with link to objects. If you create a link query and it's deferred, and then you do um, aware on it two different times, looking for two different statuses, it's going to run itself two times separately. And that's a case uh, where you would want to do two lists on that query, get it in memory, and then you could, if you are querying or building multiple collections off of, off of that query, you would have it in memory and it would be much faster. That's one of the things, right, that you, you kind of you learn as you go. The performance implications of how you build your link queries and, and how you, whether you actually enumerate them and when. So, Right. So over time, I've learned that there are cases where I want to query the database, but bring that into memory and then do some extra joins or filters and searching with that once it's in memory, rather than trying to execute this, you know, hairy query against the database directly. And it can be a lot more performant once you just bring in the raw data and all the information you need Mm -hmm. into memory and then process it from there. You know, as long as you're not dealing with, you know, super big data sets and things like that, that can be a definite benefit. Right. One of the things that that I struggled with for some time was in link, whether you use first or first or default, at least in my experience, I think most people would use first or default because you don't, if you don't know it's going to be there, you don't want it to, um, to give you an exception. The only problem then is if you do get back a null and you're not uh, handling it properly or not checking for that null, you know, you can be in a worse position than if you were just doing first. So it really depends on what your expectations are. You know, if you're using first or default, you need to make sure to check for nulls. If you're using first, um, you get an exception, you you need to make sure that you're handling that, that exception. It's just, it's a different, different way of looking at the data you're getting back. Do you find yourself using first more often than single? Yes. I've only, think I've only used single a handful of times. Hmm. I guess for one thing, because first comes to mind quicker because I do use first or default so much. Mm -hmm. You know, I know in my back pocket, I've got first in case I need it. But my interesting right single performs the same, the same uh, function as first. Is that correct? It's very, it's very similar. But of course, first, if there are multiples, it's not going to throw an error. If somehow your data set end up ended up with being multiples that match your criteria, gotcha. it's not going to 
complain about it. It's just going to give right. you the first one that it that it decides to give you. Right. Versus single, right. it's going to say it does a check. And yep. one of the differences about you know going against a database mm-hmm. is when you do single, it actually says select top two. Okay. And then if it gets back, you know, two, it says, oh, that's an oh. error. Yeah, I'm expecting there to only be one. If there's right. no, gotcha. We've been recording Ruby Rogue since 2011, and we've talked to a lot of people who have had a really deep influence, not only on the programming community, but also on the Ruby community. And as we've talked to these people, it's become apparent to me that we talk a lot about the things that make them interesting that they've done. But we don't really get into how they got into programming or how they came up in their career, how they got to be the person who invented whatever library or, or technique that they came on the show to talk about. And so I put together a show where we actually highlight these things. We talk to them about how they got into programming. We talk to them about how they got into Ruby, maybe how they got into Rails. We get a little bit deep into what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then we talk about what they're working on. We talk about the things that make them well-known or make them interesting. And a lot of times, it's the stuff that goes beyond the code that really makes these people tick and makes them the kind of people that we want to hear about. And so I put together a show called My Ruby Story. You can find it at myrubystory.com. And it's where I interview these people and just get the stories of these people and how they came into programming. So if you want to hear inspirational stories or get ideas on how you can actually advance your career, then go check it out at myrubystory.com. So when it comes to Link, do you find that... I know right in, in certain instances, it cleans up your code. But do you find that it's actually reduced like the number of if statements or if else's that you write because you're, you're able to do that inside of the query? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of times where I where I catch myself iterating over a collection and inside the execution block of each, you know, iteration, I was doing some ifs and then it's like, wait a second, I just need to move this up and filter out those things that I don't want. Right. With the where and then get rid of my ifs. Yeah, great. It's a different way of looking at things. And if you've been in .NET for a long time, and you get used to doing it in a certain way, it can be hard to make that shift. But I think it's really valuable because it can still be, or it is declarative, instead of being imperative and telling it how to do it. With Link, you're telling it what you want to do and leaving it up to C Sharp, the compiler, whatever, to determine how it does it. Mm -hmm. I guess another thing that that I kind of want to circle back on is you know how you talked about extension methods that you've created build upon link. I think that's that's really powerful and probably not used as much as it could be for developers who use link but don't don't know really the power of it. For instance, with link, you can do multiple selects on one collection. And each one of those selects could actually call a method itself that processes the data that's being passed in and then sends it to the next item of the chain. It's a little shift in how you, you process that and you, and you look at it, but I use that all the time. And you don't necessarily need to pass the variables that are objects into those uh, extension methods. And I think there's two different kinds of extension methods we're talking. 
I think one is the, the dot extension methods that get chained on as part of the pipeline. The other is inside of a select statement or um, a Lambda expression calling a, a method that you can actually pass the values into and, and get updated data back. Mm-hmm. I've written both. And, you know, in some of my code, I found that these extensions I'm using hundreds or if not thousands of times in places. And it greatly simplifies the readability. And if you write the methods or the extensions that you're calling in, in a clean way, it's very easy to, to look at one segment and then say, okay, I know what this is doing. And I know what this is doing instead of this big jumble of code that you don't really know what you're getting in the end, right? Right. So, yeah, there's, there's this standard C-sharp extension methods, which I think yep. is what you're, you're talking about most of the time. And then yep. there, there are times where I find myself writing the same predicate clause over and over again, like mm-hmm. selecting something out with a certain status or maybe two or three fields I need to know. Right. They're, they're this. And on that, I can write a link extension method, which is a function that generates a predicate. And then in my link statement, I can just do dot and then whatever I named my predicate function. That then turns in at runtime into the predicate statement that I built into the code. I'll find the link on this. But there are third-party extension, link extensions that you can pull into Visual Studio into C-sharp. And I think one, one really good one is actually called More Link. And they actually add a lot of, like you said, those uh, predicates, those uh, extension methods that, that people reuse over and over and over again. So that's definitely one to take a look at if you're interested in some third-party extensions for Link. Right. So I'm just trying to find, there is one that I tend to use quite a bit and I'm trying to search for it here. Okay. Um, but it's just, I think just extension methods or maybe it's entity framework. Maybe it's just, yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's just entity framework specific and I'll put a link to it in the show notes at the end. Okay. Yeah, that's um, a good collection of things that really helps with things like bulk selecting, bulk inserts, bulk operations and makes it much more performant than your standard entity framework options. Right. So one of the interesting things about Link is that there are actually a number of uh, functional programming concepts built into it that, that you're using in C-sharp. And, and I know, um, you know, there's people out there that say, you know, don't get your functional programming into my my object-oriented programming, right? (laughs) Let's keep them separate. But there are definitely benefits to doing functional programming when it's a better use case in a certain instance. And, you know, Link is actually one of the reasons that that I've even looked at or considered F-sharp. Now, I haven't uh, written anything for production with F-sharp. There's nothing out in the wild, so to speak. But... I do think the the more patterns and paradigms and languages you have a little familiarity with, the better programmer you become. So here's a, a small trick that people may not be aware of when creating your own link extensions, especially for maybe larger development teams. You can actually use an existing namespace like system.link and put your extension methods in this namespace. 
And when someone goes to use them, they won't have to do a using statement to your utils or your whatever your extension methods might be because they it'll piggyback off of system.link. We don't do it because we're, we're a small team and we know where, where our tools are and what using we should be. But that's you know some food for thought if you've got a large team and, and people don't necessarily know where to go to find this or that or they feel like they're missing something and they get stuck. You can actually use existing namespaces and it will f- fall right in line. Yeah, now I'll caution a lot of our listeners about using that way to do it is mm-hmm. that you have to really think about that because there's a potential yep. for a future collision. Like if you have an extension method and then they decide to add something with that same name in yep. uh, the namespace that you're working, there's going to be collision. And oh, definitely lot, keep that in mind. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of people run into that now with, with uh, JavaScript is all the, the little libraries out there. <laughs> You know, like Moo Tools and, and RxJS and things like that. They had some, you know, methods. A couple variables. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But even, you know, like flat map and things like that was a big thing that was going on, talking about. And one group had to use a different name that wasn't quite as intuitive because mm-hmm. some other popular library was also already using that. And then now they can't use it in you know, new versions of ES because there's going to be a, a collision because I think this original library that's really popular used it in the global namespace. Now that's kind of blocked from being used by anybody else. So it can be done, but you might want to stick with you things. You need to uh, to weigh the positives and negatives. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. If you're a development team of senior devs, not necessarily something you would, would need to to do. So there's something else when it comes to link that I wanted to talk about a little bit. And, and I'm not going to go deep because this is another topic you can get really deep into. But the idea of expression trees and expression trees are one of the things that Microsoft actually uses behind the scenes to create some of the extension methods for link on I enumerable of T. And it's one of those things where you don't think you'll ever use it until you have to. <laughs> I actually have one instance where I have had to write my own expression tree. And in this case, it was a database table where the columns were the identifier and the rows were information associated with that column. So instead of getting a row, I had to get all the rows for a specific column, right? And that's not typically how you query a database. But it was something that was well before me, right? Legacy, something we really couldn't change. We wanted to be able to, to dynamically query the database based off the column name. And there's no easy way to do that with right, what you have built into C Sharp. So what an expression tree allows you to do is you can continue to use link. And uh, you pass, uh, for this instance, the column name value into this expression tree and you can actually and i'll have to to add a link to the show notes to really so people can really look at this and understand it but what it will allow you to do is you can then query or build an expression tree and query the data you need beforehand up front before it's actually compiled and run and then you actually call a funk i forget the specifics again i'll put it in the show notes and then get the data back 
based off the expression tree that you built from scratch. And so in this instance, right, we can pass in the column name and get all of the row values for that column. And right, once you've written the expression tree, you can use it, you know, hundreds of times in multiple places and be able to dynamically pass in values and get the correct information back. I think it's probably uh, not going to be um, a use case that a lot of people find they need, but it's interesting to actually dig into it and see how it's done because it's another one of those things uh, behind the scenes where it's a lot, a lot of what they're doing in, in C-sharp itself for Link. So, Yeah, I can't say that I've had to find uh, a use case for doing something like that in any of my projects. Yeah. Well, hopefully you won't. <laughs> but hey, but it's there if you need it. Okay. Thank you. Thank for the tip. Right. <laughs> so what are some things that you think is kind of still difficult or the hardest things to do within within Link? Hmm. I do think a lot of people have issues with select many or grouping in Link or using aggregate. Some of the more obscure is not the right word, but some of the less used but really powerful features built into Link, but that they're kind of hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, my top thing for difficult to wrap my mind around was probably going to be the the aggregate syntax. Yep. Passing in the multiple variables into each part of the predicate and then which one becomes the individual and then which one gets passed back. And, right. and that loop there kind of bends my mind sometimes. So yeah. it's probably just because I haven't had to do it enough. Right. Yeah. But uh, and then select many people haven't used that before. That allows you to kind of flatten out the collection. So if you have a collection of collections, but you don't want that nested result set, you mm-hmm. can select many that will flatten out the two collections or the multiple collections into a single collection in one big, one big result set. And something I found with select many, and I don't do this very often, is I fall I can fall back to the query expression, the kind of the SQL-like syntax. And what you can do there is you can do multiple froms, and that takes place of the select many in the lambda type, you know, the, the right. pipeline chaining. Mm-hmm. And you can also do um, let and basically define variables inside of the query that are based off of those froms, it's definitely, it's cleaner looking. Right. It's a lot more readable in that. Yes. And, and that's, that's mainly the reason why I sometimes fall back to that query syntax is when yeah. I just want something more readable. Or there are times when I'm trying to do joins upon, mm-hmm. you know, objects that don't have a relationship property already defined between them. And I need to do that join. I find the syntax in the query syntax easier to do than it is in, in the Lambda syntax. Yep. Even though I don't use it much, it definitely there are some benefits there, especially when it comes to readability or, or, or mentally the mental model, right? Are there any performance issues or performance tips that you've learned uh, to do with Link? We've already talked about a few of them. Deferred execution, you know, avoiding multiple enumerations, one of the things that built into Link is uh, when you're using things like uh, any or all, well, any especially, it will break early uh, or as soon as it finds 
a true or false value that you're looking for. So, right, when it comes to performance, those are things to keep in mind. One of the other things, again, is the, the grouping by. Depending on how you're using group, group by or um, building out your link query can have significant impacts on performance, good and bad. So speaking of grouping and group by, my biggest performance gain that I learned over the time is for the longest time, I was just throwing everything into a to list at the end. And mm-hmm. then if I needed to search that list, I would then just write another link statement with that list right. as my, my, my from set. Because you have and, it in memory. Right. Yeah. It's all in memory and thinking that, oh, to list, that's going to be really fast. Well, once you get up into the thousands of records in your list, mm-hmm. that becomes really, really slow because it iterates over every single you know, item in the list to see does it match what you're trying to find. But that becomes really slow, especially if you get 10, 50, 100,000 or even more. I learned that the best thing to, to put your set into is a dictionary. So if you go, if you group something yeah and then do a two dictionary and your key is what you want to be able to search by a dictionary uses a b-tree search Mm -hmm. much much more performance benefit than just trying to do search yeah so if you if anybody else is using two list on a big list really look at trying to change that to a two dictionary it'll be much much faster absolutely so what else you got i think we've cumbered Pretty much everything I want. <laughs> there, <laughs> suffice to say, there's a lot to link and a lot to dig into. So take a look at the uh, the links um, in the show notes. If there's anything we can do to help, I can't promise you anything, but you're welcome to to go to devchat.tv and join us in Discord. Start up a conversation. Yeah. So if anybody wants to find that Discord group, just go to devchat.tv and at the top, look for chat. Join us and you can talk to any of the hosts, or other listeners for any of the devchat.tv podcasts. So one of the great things about being in my position is that I get to talk to a lot of people. And one thing that I find is regardless of what programming community they're in, a lot of them have the same questions. How do I stay current? How do I find a better job? How do I find my first job? Should I go to a boot camp? All of these different things come up on a regular basis. Another thing is, is people get into situations where they don't quite know how to make the difference they want to make in the team or the organization they're working in be it things that are driving them crazy that they want to change, or sometimes it's just, I love where I work. I love the people I work with. What can we do better? And so I answer a lot of these questions on the DevRev. And you can check it out at devrev.com. And if you come and join the DevRev, what you're going to see, I do videos on this one. This is my only video podcast, but we do videos and I answer these questions. So I talk a lot about how to stay current. I talk a lot about taking responsibility for where you're at and how to make a difference and all of these different things. So come check it out at devrev.com and see what we're doing. And if you have any questions, you can actually go to devchat.tv, click send voicemail on the right-hand side, record a quick recording for me, and I will play it on the show and then answer the question. Once again, that's devrev.com. So uh, let's, I guess, move on to picks, I guess, if you're ready for that. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm ready. I think my pick is going to be LinkPad. You know, it really fits into our our subject today. Everybody go out to linkpad.net. And look at that. It's, it's inexpensive. It's got a lot of benefit. You can query, you know, entity framework objects. You can just query, you know, regular link in memory objects. But one thing I actually do it a lot for is when somebody just wants this little ad hoc report, 
or I want to just test a few functions, I'll put my code into that and run it from there. And rather than trying to fire up some sort of a, you know, a project and project within Visual Studio yeah. and, and build it from there. It has all the same tools you can do. You can set breakpoints, you can debug, all that kind of stuff right inside its, its editor there. And then they also have this extension library, I think it's called the Predicate Builder. So it allowed you to create a lot more complex predicate operations than you can in just the standard link library. Cool. Great. And uh, my pick for this week has nothing to do with programming. Well, nothing to do with .NET programming. It's uh, Plex and PlayOn. And both of them have to do with um, basically media server, your recordings, movies, TV shows, and whatnot. And uh, for Plex, I've actually, I have their uh, lifetime deal, which gives me DVR functionality. So we have just over the air, we're cord cutters. So, uh, but it will actually record over the air TV shows based off of a schedule inside of their system. And I live in New Orleans, so we get, we got some good quality stations and that works out well. And then we use PlayOn for, for other stuff that we want to pull into our server like Netflix or Amazon, it will actually make a copy of the video and we can store it locally. Both of them have been invaluable in my house, uh, especially with a three-year-old. So, <laughs> Yeah, we've been looking at becoming uh, cord cutters lately because we've been getting frustrated with all the blackouts of certain channels. Oh, yeah. Where I'm at, we've had Fox has been blacked out for, I don't know, Six months, nine months, something like that. It's just crazy. And then just recently, they they blacked out NBC. And then I was just reading an article today that tonight they might be blacking out ESPN. So it's like, uh, my, yeah, I'm, I'm evaluating all the different streaming providers and we're right. running a trial of, of Fubo right now. Okay. And it's pretty nice, but some of their interface can use some, some improvements far as, you know, fast forwarding and things like that, yeah. I would really like to see some of the streaming providers come out with a local box mm-hmm. so that it would have some local storage of your recorded programs and it wouldn't have to stream those to watch them. So say your internet was down or, or just the better performance of being able to fast forward and search through things on a right. local box that had either a small SSD or a memory card in it would be much more performant and a better user experience. So I'm, I'm hoping that's, somebody does that someday. Well, that's what we're doing with Plex. I mean, of course, uh, I had to set it all up and I have to make everything run and, and, and I'm actually doing some transcoding after the fact, right? Because I'm a geek. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's actually a server sitting right next to me. Got about mm-hmm. 10 terabytes in it. And we just got, you know, oodles of, of stuff. So cutting the cord can be a little painful, but I found it well worth it. So. Yeah. So it only records the broadcast stuff. It won't record locally something off of Netflix or anything. No, it won't. Right. No, right. It won't. So that's, yeah, I was hoping like Roku or somebody would come up with a box just had its own little storage. You can say, you know, record, download this show from Netflix. So it's local. And I have no complaints about Netflix and, and it, because it they do something really special about, I don't know how they do it to be so quick to be able to search through the program and it mm-hmm. gives you little, you know, keyframes 
right. what you're seeing, but I've not found any other streaming service that, that does it that way, at least on well, the that we're trying right now. If you try to skip ahead, you can't see where you're skipping other than 10 seconds at a time. Right. That's why I use PlayOn. I know it's two separate programs, but PlayOn, basically, right, copying stuff from Netflix and Amazon Prime locally, and then I'm, put, I'm putting it in my Plex server. So it's searchable and manageable, and I can fast forward and rewind and all that stuff. Nice. Okay. Well, thanks, Sean. It's been fun digging into Link with you and uh, looking forward to our next episode. Great. Thank you. And you have a good time, too. You, too. All right. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.